the life forged in the fires of war and friendship. This is the story of J.R.R. Tolkien that you have never heard. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. You know, sometimes we think we have things tough. And if that's true, that's a great thing. And the testimony to that is the life of J.R.R. Tolkien. This guy uh, lost both parents at a young age, fought the bloodiest war the world had ever seen, lost friends in that war, and somehow came out of this all as one of the 20th century's greatest authors and gifts to humanity. In today's episode of the Magnus Podcast, we're going to dive into a beautiful lecture delivered by Helen Free in the Magnus uh, Fellowship. Uh, one of one of the one of the greatest classes we've ever offered. Really, the students were raving about it, and you're going to see why in this lecture, which is the first part of a class, and then discussion ensues. Uh, if you want to become a Magnus Fellow today, join the fellowship. It's completely free. It's as free as it is freeing. Join over 700 fellows in the fellowship right now in just over a year and a half of our existence. It really is spreading like wildfire, and you can see why in this podcast. Join us at magnusinstitute.org. A reminder that the biggest donation that the Albertus Magnus Institute had uh, in the, actually ever uh, is $10,000. We have no whales supporting us. We have no big uh, corporate money backing us. We only have you. Uh, if you'd like to become a monthly benefactor, visit magnusinstitute.org slash give. Anything helps. Monthly gifts are great. Uh, they help us make payroll every month. And if you want to top that $10,000 donation, that's just as good too. magnusinstitute.org slash give. Help us out. It is a great cause and it's something you'll be happy to do. Uh, I want to just make a quick announcement about next week's podcast. The, we're approaching the 50th episode. We've got some very big announcements to make next week in this 50th episode uh, coming up next week. So, Tune in then, and for now, enjoy this beautiful biographical presentation on the life of J.R.R. Tolkien by Dr. Helen Free. Okay, let's launch into it. You know, Tolkien has a draw, a draw to his work that is very powerful and makes people want to want to understand more. It's more than just, you could say, a book club, uh, which we read it once, you know, once and done. But people really want to understand, why is this work? Why does it speak to me? Or why does it speak to other people so much. Um, I need to read this and uh, and really understand what's what's going on here. One caveat, really really strong caveat, and I'll bring up Peter Jackson's movies often in uh, in this course. But do not substitute watching the movie for reading the book. That's so important. And the reason I say that is that movies directors, producers, screenwriters. They themselves are creating a worldview based on their imagination of a story. And so Peter Jackson's Middle Earth is Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. It is not necessarily Tolkien's Middle Earth. They may inter intersect in certain areas, but they certainly diverge in really key areas. And I'll and I'll point those out. Um, so again, if you're taking this class thinking, 
I saw the movies, don't need to read the book. You have to read the book because otherwise you'll be missing really integral things. And particularly in the area of, of the spiritual life, the spiritual dimension. What is Tolkien doing spiritually? Because that is the major area that, that Peter Jackson and, and his screenwriters uh, get wrong. Uh, in the book, uh, in the movie, it has otherwise a lot of really positive things to it, but it also has some pretty concerning and troubling negatives to it that really speak to, you can say, the problems of our postmodern and post-Christian era. But we'll talk about that um, as these uh, eight weeks progress. One other thing to mention regarding this course is we're only reading The Fellowship of the Ring. I'm really grateful to the Magnus Institute for letting me propose a three-course class on Tolkien's great work, it's often called a trilogy because it's split into three books. Uh, Tolkien never intended it as a trilogy. That was only for practical reasons of the cost of paper after World War II that it was ever split into three. But it is also convenient to have it split into three because, quite honestly, it would be a real disservice to the work to try to cover the entire thing within uh, eight weeks. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't even, even propose, propose such a thing. Okay, so let's let's get into it. So I want to give you a brief but but important biography uh, on J.R.R. Tolkien because an author's life does shape his or her work. Tolkien was born in South Africa to Arthur and Mabel Tolkien, and he has only one brother, Hilary. Mabel returns with the two boys when they're young. She returns to England just for a family visit. She was fully intending to go back. Um, so she returns in 1895 to England. Tolkien at this point is about three years old. Um, his younger brother is only one years old. And while she's back in England, her husband, Arthur, dies of yellow fever. So Mrs. Tolkien is now widowed, and she moves in with her parents uh, in the, the industrial town of Birmingham in England. Her parents are Baptists. And her in-laws are Unitarian. And again, the faith tradition is important because of the conversion that's going to happen uh, to Roman Catholicism. Mabel tutors both the boys in the things that she loved the most, which were botany, language, and art. And so you see that absolutely in the influence on J.R.R. Tolkien and, uh, and his art. Um, if I had the time, I would, I would do a, a book on this woman, something like Faith of Our Mothers, because she must have been an amazing, amazing woman, given her abilities at schooling her, her sons. Mrs. Tolkien was skilled in both penmanship and languages. Uh, she has full command of Greek, of Latin, of French, and the young Tolkien could read and write proficiently before he was four years old. So either that speaks to a type of uh, savant nature of Tolkien picking up things, uh, or it picks it shows how what an amazing teacher his mother must have been. I personally homeschool, and I can tell you from my own experience that I'm still working really hard to get my now seven-year-old um, to be a proficient reader and certainly a proficient uh, a pr proficient writer. Um, so Mabel always interests me a great deal. Um, it's extremely important that she converts to Roman Catholicism in the year 1900, so right turn of the century. And she converts under the influence of the Birmingham Oratory. 
And this oratory is the one that, that St. John Henry Newman had established after his own conversion to Roman Catholicism in the mid-19th century. When she converts, she is completely disowned by her family, and she is left to fend for herself and for the boys with, with no financial support. Um, so what did it mean to convert to Roman Catholicism for a British Protestant? This is something that, uh, as Americans, we often just don't even consider what the ramifications are of conversion from a political from a political standpoint, because we have such such freedom of of religion and religious religious faith as uh, almost a, a tenet of of Americanism. Um, not so much the same for a, a British, particularly British woman, uh, in the turn of the of the twentieth century. So, what did it mean for for her to become a Roman Catholic? It meant it meant everything. Faith and patriotism were very much equated. In the British Anglican viewpoint, Catholicism, unlike other non-Anglican denominations like the Baptists or the Unitarians of Mabel Tolkien's family, they were they were not seen as the faith of the national enemies of England, like France or Spain, uh, and even even Ireland. Even though Ireland was a, a conquered a conquered nation, it wasn't until the early 20th century that centuries-old laws banning Catholics from public office were, were lifted. Um, and if you know anything about what St. John Henry Newman suffered after he became Roman Catholic, then you understand also what's, what's going on here uh, to a lesser degree, but even still uh, with Mabel. So this is in 1900. In 1904, Mabel dies of complications from, from diabetes. Um, and she dies after four years of very great financial hardship. Um, she had already attached herself to the Birmingham Oratory. And so after her death, she assigned guardianship of her two sons to Father Francis Morgan, um, who was an oratorian. And, and she asked him to raise her sons as, uh, as Roman Catholics, which he did very well. Tolkien himself refers to Father Francis in his own letters as his second, as his second father which Father Francis very much, very much was. If you read Tolkien's letters, and I highly encourage you to do that if you want a, a more intimate glimpse into, into Tolkien's life, his thinking, um, his spirituality. But he says in his letters repeatedly that he sees his mother's early death uh, as a type of martyrdom because it occurred because she was Catholic. Uh, he believed that had she not become Catholic, had she not converted, she would have had the, the financial mean, means necessary to take care of herself and thus not uh, die, um, die at an early age. So again, from his childhood and until his death, he took his Catholicism very seriously. Um, he wasn't a cradle Catholic, but he is what's called a, a, convinced, a convinced Catholic. Um, he saw the Protestant Reformation as one of the greatest mistakes of, of human history and he also sees it as the harbinger of this modern period of, of relativism. Um, he had particular antagonism to Anglicans. He referred to, and if anyone's Anglican here, then these are Tolkien's words. They're, they're not mine. I myself was baptized in the Episcopal faith. My father always called us Anglicans because he wanted to distinguish us from, I guess, low church Episcopalians and high church Episcopalians. But he says to Anglicans that they were, quote, 
a pathetic and shadowy medley of half-remembered traditions and mutilated beliefs. So again, our, our author can be quite, uh, quite opinionated at times. Um, so Tolkien holds to the Catholic faith despite uh, plenty of, of, of difficult times uh, throughout his life. Um, just as a side note, if you also want to read his own take on, on Vatican II and the changes in the church that occur in the late 60s, he's got some fascinating letters that have to have to do with that, the changeover, um, the aggiornamento, as it was, as it was called. Tolkien went to King, King Edward's school in Birmingham, and he forms a, a very close and a deep friendship with three other young men, Rob Gilson, Jeffrey Smith and Christopher Wiseman. They formed a secret society, which they called the TCBS, which stood for the Tea Club and Barovian Society. Um, and I like the, uh, the the dangerous way that people lived in the past. So what they did to rebel was they met and they drank tea and they wrote poetry together uh, illegally in the library. Uh, I guess for them, that was that was questionable. It's not like the, the nasty TikTok challenges of our of our present day. But Tolkien considers this early friendship the most important of his life. Uh, his later adult friendship with C.S. Lewis was closely akin to his early bond with these other young men. Um, but he never loses this deep friendship that he that he formed with these with these other men. Uh, again, the four would discuss ideas, poetry. They would share their work and they would comment on each other's work. And they call themselves the Immortal Four. Um, I'll discuss more about them when I get into Tolkien and the, and the Great War. It doesn't have a happy ending, just, just so you know. Tolkien meets his future wife at the very young age of 16. And Edith Bratt was 19, so three years her senior. Both Tolkien and Edith are orphans, but they live at the same boarding house, Humphrey Carpenter, who's the official biographer of Tolkien, reports on their early teenage courtship uh, in, in the authorized biography. And he talks about how they would meet for tea in a tea shop and they would, they would toss uh, little sugar cubes down into the, to the large hats um, of the, the ladies who were, who were passing by. And I always like that image because I think it shows a real playfulness on the part of, uh, of Tolkien and not the stodginess that sometimes people perceive when they think about him in his later life as the, as the Oxford Don. But he fell deeply in love um, with Edith, and, and they, want, they decide early on they want to marry each other. But there's two big problems. One is that Edith is not Catholic, and two, Tolkien is not even 18 yet. And so I think quite understandably, Father Francis, again, his guardian, he says Tolkien is too young to form this alliance. He had just received a type of what we call a scholarship to Oxford. And uh, Father Francis worries for his, for his ward that an early marriage would, would really derail his studies and a successful future life. And so Father Francis forbids Tolkien from communicating with Edith uh, until Tolkien is 21 years old. And at this point, Tolkien is 17, um, 17 or maybe 18. So Tolkien is looking at a three to four year period of, of complete non-communication with this woman that, that he would like to marry. 
But Tolkien is obedient. Um, he obeys his guardian, and he has absolutely no contact with Edith for uh, for three to four years. And this is really throughout his his whole of his Oxford undergraduate uh, years. But I think it's a great romance story because on the eve of his 21st birthday, which would have been early January, Tolkien writes a, a beautiful love letter, which I would love to see. It's, not, it's never been published, but I'm sure someone must have it. But he writes a beautiful love letter to Edith declaring that he still loves her and he wants to, to marry her. And so they meet and they became engaged. Uh, she converts to Catholicism and they're married at a, a Catholic church in Warwick, St. Mary Immaculate Church. And there's a little plaque there now uh, indicating that uh, if you ever go to visit. Uh, but they get married on the 22nd of March in 1916. And this happens immediately before, if you're at all students of, of history, you're thinking, hmm, what else is going on in 1916 with poor British young men? Uh, and that's the Great War, uh, World War I. Uh, and so Tolkien is shipped off to the French front um, and the Battle of the Somme immediately after, after getting married. So let me shift now and talk about the influence of, of World War I, of Great War on Tolkien. Okay, a wonderful book on uh, Tolkien and the Great War is by an author called John Garth, G-A-R-T-H. Uh, has an easy title to remember. It's called Tolkien and the Great War. Uh, it is an excellent book on this time period, uh, and not just on Tolkien. Um, it's, not, it's not a book just on Tolkien, but it's a book on World War I, and it's absolutely devastating effects on, uh, on England. So Tolkien volunteers for the army very soon after he's married. Um, the UK is already engaged in the war and Tolkien enters uh, as a second, as a second lieutenant. World War I devastates England culturally. Uh, the total number of deaths on all sides, both military and civilian, was about 16 million people. Um, with another 21 million wounded. So again, you can just imagine what that must have been like psychologically and spiritually on, on the nation. If we look at you know, the, the deaths from the past 20 years in Afghanistan, they're nothing compared to what happened in World War I. Um, and I think it, I forget who said this or, or where this number comes from, but there are more people who die in the 20th century by violence than in all other wars combined throughout, throughout history. And the war is particularly devastating psychologically because England and also Europe in the 19th century had truly believed in the idea of progressivism. And that's progressivism with a capital P. It's, it's an actual ism, an idea. An idea. Um, and this is the idea that if we only ordered our political and our religious institutions correctly, then we would achieve utopia. We would achieve peace. Um, and there was a very firm belief that with the rise of economic status of European nations, uh, with the interchange of, of commerce, um, that uh, essentially the nations were too closely bound to ever go to war uh, with each other. Um, there's another fantastic book called um, The Guns of August, uh, if you've ever read that as well. And uh, Barbara Tuchman, the author of that book, she gets into this whole idea in the beginning of that book 
this firm idea that Europeans had that war was inconceivable if we just interrelied on each other uh, financially and economically enough. So they truly believed in this idea of, of progressivism. War had war had died. There would be no war. And World War I was, was the bloodiest war that human history had ever seen. Two of Tolkien's dear friends die in 1916. This is during the great battle, horrible battle of the Somme. And these are Rob Gilson and Jeffrey Smith. And these deaths strike Tolkien very hard because he knows that potential greatness has been cut short. He acknowledges in one of his letters to Christopher Wiseman, the fourth friend that he had, that his own ability to compose great works of literature would never be the same without the presence of the other two uh, to help him in his own endeavors. And so already you see the great importance of a single human soul that's emerging in Tolkien's own understanding of life. Uh, humans are never meant to be individuals, but they're always meant to be persons who live in community. I'll talk about individuals as we get on in this class, but the term individual is very much a, uh, an enlightenment term, a modern term, um, and it is referencing in some sense all of us as separate beings as opposed to the human person, which by its very nature involves other, other persons. Um, so humans are not meant to be individuals, but they're meant to be in community. Tolkien says in a, in a very moving letter to Christopher Wiseman, after hearing of, of Gilson's death, that he feels, quote, but a mere individual now. So here you see Tolkien using that word individual, but in some sense, a pejorative way. It's not how we ought to be. We ought to be in community. There's a very poignant final letter of Jeffrey Smith to Tolkien. Um, it's his last letter that he writes in which, in which Smith says, quote, and I'll read this because it's just very beautiful. And I always kind of brings tears to my eyes thinking about what these men, really what any, what any person has to uh, endure in battle, in battlefield situations. But Smith writes, quote, my chief consolation is that if I am scuppered tonight, there will still be left a member of the great TCBS to voice what I dreamed and what we all agreed upon. For the death of one of its members cannot put an end to the immortal four. May God bless you, my dear John Ronald, and may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am not there to say them, if such be my lot. I'll try not to get emotional, even though I've read that letter multiple times. <laughs> so friendship. Um, friendship is one of the most important things for, for Tolkien, um, faith and friendship. Um, so what is friendship for Tolkien? This is what we'll be discussing throughout the semester. Um, what is friendship? What contributes to it? What, what counters it? How is friendship the element that really defeats darkness, that defeats, that defeats evil? You know, why is friendship so essential to the human person? Um, and ultimately, how does friendship connect to a God, to a God who loves us and who himself has become friends with us. But even now, at the beginning of, of our own conversation with each other, we can say that for Tolkien, true friendship is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, the exchange of ideas, the exchange of love, of affection for another person, 
reflects partially the love that God has for his creation, has for humankind. So ultimately, man's friendship with God will be of utmost importance. And yet no man can be friends with God who isn't able to maintain a human friendship. Aquinas says we move from the natural to the supernatural. We can't just boom, start at the supernatural. We have to begin already with this natural earthy world that is around us. Um, And so friendship is so key to not only a person's place uh, in the world, uh, but also his or her interaction uh, with the world. This, This universal theme of friendship in many ways dominates Tolkien's work. Uh, And if one considers it as part of your own life, friendship in one way or another dominates our lives, dominates your life. Other themes, of course, play a role in in Tolkien's work. One of those everyone points out is the battle of good versus evil. But it's not just that. That's why I always say when someone says, oh, Tolkien's work is about good and evil. You say, well, yes, it is. But it's a lot more than just the work than good and evil. Uh, in some sense, sort of looking at how it is this battle between good and evil requires us to define what is good, define what is evil, and to have a, a common consensus about that. Because obviously, in our own day and age, we're seeing people call things good, which once were called evil, calling things evil, which once were called uh, once we're called good. Tolkien absolutely will not be a relativist when it comes to good and evil. He holds in a firm and an objective truth of what those things actually entail. Tom Shippey, S-H-I-P-P-E-Y, is another very well-known critic of J.R. Tolkien. He wrote an excellent book called J.R. Tolkien, the Author of the Century, It's now a little bit dated because he was writing this at the turn of the, what are we now, 21st century? I still don't use that too often. So 2000, we switched over to the 21st century. But he names Tolkien the author of the century because he says that Tolkien's work confronts the origin, this is his words, quote, the origin and nature of evil. Um, So again, Shippey is one of those critics that really focuses on evil, good and evil, as the the main themes of of Tolkien's work. Um, But I'm going to suggest that Tolkien addresses the nature of evil. I acknowledge it's absolutely true, but he does this by looking at a much deeper question and frankly, a more difficult question, which is, what is the principle of order that defines a world in which radical evil and suffering continue to flourish side by side with the flourishing of love and friendship. You know, these, these relationships that we can clearly see, clearly define, clearly say these are not evil. And yet we also clearly see evil in our world. And that's what Tolkien is getting at. And it's a hard question. It's a hard question to answer. It's the question that many Christians receive uh, you know why does a good god allow evil things to happen to innocent people that, that that challenging that challenging question well the answer to this question is is very much integral for understanding a person's place in the world and tolkien's great contribution to the 20th century i mean this is why he is not only the author of the century but continues to be a very relevant author, even to our own times in 2021. Um, He answers this despair 
uh, the despair of materialism, the despair of determinism that arose really starting in the 18th century during the Enlightenment. But as we see just looking around, it's increased in magnitude, um, even into our own times. So I argue that Tolkien is the author of the century because he gives a response to this sense of hopelessness that's caused by a belief of a type of faded entrapment in the world, that the, the self is worthless, that our efforts are worthless. We see this despair in much of 20th century and 21st century literature. The, the despair is presented, the hopelessness is presented, but an answer is not provided. And maybe because many of those authors cannot provide an answer, all they see is, is the despair. But Tolkien does not leave his readers in despair. He chooses a really radical way of writing his literature. And this is one of the reasons why he is uh, he's dismissed by many academics, because he chooses to write a, a fictional secondary world that is whole and consistent. And yet it is not our world. And yet our world is also fully reflected in this secondary, the secondary world of Middle Earth that Tolkien creates. Um, and in the secondary world, he returns his modern audience to this ancient yet extremely relevant conflict between fate, providence, and the place of the person's own free will. He picks up the discussion and he presents it to us, uh, his modern audience, in a way that we can at least hear, if not wholly accept. We can at least be open to what he's saying. Tolkien uses myth and poetics rather than a direct philosophical or theological discourse as his means for presenting anew the universal problem of human free will before deterministic and antagonistic forces for good or for evil. Friendship and selfless love is at the heart of evil's defeat. And it's the lack of these things that we see in Tolkien's work that cause evil, evil to flourish. If you have any knowledge of Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis's work, perhaps already you might be seeing the difference between Tolkien and Lewis in their approach to an evangelical, an evangelical literature. Lewis chooses that theological discourse to try to achieve conversion. Tolkien steps back and he says, if conversion happens, conversion happens. But if it doesn't, it doesn't, because that's not my aim as an author. Uh, my aim is not to convert your heart. My aim is to show you the truth. And if the truth converts, the truth converts. If it doesn't, the person needs to perhaps have more have more prayers. Uh, but we'll talk about the difference in Tolkien and Lewis's approach as we as we continue this discussion as well, um, because I think it's very relevant even to our own day with how how does one convey truth? How does one convey one's own one's own beliefs? And Tolkien chooses the poetic versus versus the the philosophical. Okay, this is a simple formula. is brilliantly used by Tolkien regarding friendship and, and selfless love. Uh, but let me stop here and see if you have any questions, thoughts, observations, responses. Is his friendship with C.S. Lewis 
is that brought out with, within the Lord of the Rings or the Fellowship of the Rings? Or is that sort of an incidental sort of sidebar in his life? No, it's not incidental sidebar. I think that um, you could argue that all of his relationships and friendships are brought out within the work, but because the work is absolutely not allegory, you can't point to one character and say, I'm just putting this out there. You say Gandalf represents C.S. Lewis in the Lord of the Rings. You can't say that because Tolkien so, he's so hated allegory. He would never have done that. But you could say attributes of Lewis are seen in each of the characters in different elements, just like attributes of his friends are seen in different in different characters within the novel. Aspects of his love for Edith are seen in uh, in the Arwen Aragorn relationship. If you know again his, his biography, he sets Baron and Luthien as the names on his his and his wife's tombstone. But is he Baron? Is she Luthien? No, no. But there's elements of that that are part of their a part of their story. Um, so he became friends with Lewis in his in his adulthood. I became friends with Lewis in the nineteen early nineteen thirties, um, and so he's already a, a middle aged man at that point. Uh, and Lewis was very influential in in our even having the Lord of the Rings because Tolkien was a huge procrastinator and he was a perfectionist, so he was always writing and rewriting and rewriting. Lewis, he wrote a lot and he published a lot because Lewis just was not the same type of a perfectionist that that Tolkien was. And really, it was just Lewis that probably said to Tolkien, get it out there. Stop rewriting. This is good enough. Publish this. And thus we have we have the Lord of the Rings. Thanks. Thanks to C.S. Lewis and his push. Did Tolkien start writing when he was a kid? Was he writing stories when he was very young? Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. Uh, he was. He was already writing poetry when he was, I think, seven or eight. Uh, the one poem that most strikes me is a poem that he wrote when he was part of the TCBS that is essentially the, the initial view of what becomes in the opening of the Silmarillion, the opening creation myth, which is called the Aina Lindala. And again, I'm giving you all these extra things to read. Um, but if you don't read anything else from the Silmarillion, read those first five pages, which is the creation myth of, of Middle Earth. And it's, it's, it's got a lot of unlots, but it's called the Aina Lindala. And he continues that poem in the trenches of World War II or World War I. And that's why it so strikes me, because the, the myth itself is a myth about how evil mars good. And yet good continues to take what evil does and not deny the evil, but to intertwine. Good is so powerful. It intertwines the evil into something new that we never really expected before. And Tolkien's very careful to say it doesn't mean that it was good for evil to have been. And that's that's absolutely true. Um, And so what I think is so moving about that is Tolkien objectively has a really hard childhood. He loses his father when he's what about four years old. Uh, he, he loses his mother when he's 11 years old. He's kind of a, a have to raise his baby brother on his own. He himself is raised by a type of foster father. He goes to World War One, where so many friends were killed, particularly two, two very dear friends. And it, again, if you know the literature of Britain during this time, post-World War One, it becomes 
it completely rejects God. It completely rejects providence. It fully embraces the hedonism uh, that we call the Roaring Twenties. But the Roaring Twenties in England were a lot more roaring than the Roaring Twenties in America. Really, the Roaring Twenties in England almost more like our 1960s in in America. But Tolkien does not choose to do that. Um, instead, we see in his early writings. Um, this firm belief in in providence, um, that no denial of evil, I mean, evil is all around him, he sees it in the trenches of the war, but that evil doesn't somehow erase this greater vision that he has of, of God's goodness and of God's providence. So that's what always strikes me about his early writing, is that you already see this, this absolute confidence in a type of providential hand that that rules the world. Could you say a few words about how the Hobbit and the Silmarillion fit in around the Lord of the Rings? Sure. First, I'll say the Hobbit initially does not. Uh, it's the Silmarillion that Tolkien calls the work of his heart. And again, it begins, one could argue, in, in the trenches of, of World War I. Uh, and he continues writing and rewriting and adding to it over and over and over again throughout his whole life so that he actually never publishes what we know as the Silmarillion. What we know as the Silmarillion is thanks to his son, Christopher Tolkien, who assembled, it was a yeoman's work, because um, if you've seen the History of Middle-Earth volumes, I think there's something like 12 volumes of the History of Middle-Earth, which are all of his unfinished writings about this world. But his son, Christopher, in 1973, I think, maybe it's 74, I have to check the publication date, he assembles these things into a manageable and understandable narrative, uh, which is the Silmarillion. But so Tolkien's always working on Middle Earth as it's understood in the Silmarillion. But uh, just for money, uh, as any teacher knows, you don't really make that much teaching. And so Tolkien picked up extra work by grading uh, exams during the off season of Oxford. And he was so bored with writing the exams. He very famously just flipped it over and just wrote a thought that was in his head, which was in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he was a, he was a linguist and he thought, well, where does the word hobbit come from? Why did I even think of that? So we began to do research into the word hobbit and then thus began this whole world of the hobbits which quite honestly initially did not fit in to the Silmarillion. He wrote it just for fun and he wrote it for his own children. Um, but even as he, as, as he finished the writing of it, and you can see this in the, in, the, in the course of The Hobbit, it moves very much from a much more lighthearted to a much more serious tale. And it ends in a much more serious way than it began. But, but it was separate. It was separate from, from Lord of the Rings but there, or from Silmarillion. But there are a couple of things that that drifted into the Hobbit almost by necessity because of, of his imagination. Um, and those were, for instance, the necromancer when he references the necromancer uh, in there, but the Hobbit was so popular with both Britain and then also America that everyone was clamoring for more Hobbits. And so his publisher, Stanley Unwin came back to him and said, everybody loves your work. We want more Hobbits. You know, what else do you have to give me? And Tolkien says, Oh, I've got the Silmarillion. So he stacks on this huge manuscript on his poor publisher's dress. Boom. It's the Silmarillion. And Stanley Unwin looks at it and says, 
I don't even know what to make of this. Um, As somebody said, he said kind of rudely, and he almost lost Tolkien's uh, business for the rest of his life. He called it a telephone book of elvish names, is what he said. And Tolkien was really offended. But thanks to C.S. Lewis, um, his pride was, was assuaged. And he began to say, okay, how do the hobbits fit into this? Um, and so in some sense, he makes the hobbits fit into his world of, of the Silmarillion of Middle Earth because they don't. They don't fit in the way he had originally had envisioned it. But the way he recrafts it with the Lord of the Rings, he achieves that, that connection that the hobbit itself is, is, kind of, is kind of lacking. That's why as many people, when they, they, they read, they think, oh, I love the Lord of the Rings. I love the Hobbit. I think I'll read the Silmarillion. And they pick up the Silmarillion and they say, oh, this is not at all what I was expecting. So I really don't recommend the Silmarillion to a lot of people um, unless you're willing to read it with an understanding of what's going on, because the the tone and tenor is is extremely different in uh, in the Silmarillion from, from Lord of the Rings. So Okay, I hate to do exclusive lecture because I get bored just hear myself talk, but sometimes it's kind of necessary just to get the things that I want you to see out there. So if you have any other questions, I want to turn to that handout that I wanted you to read from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Again, I'm a, I'm a, a loving senior fellow. I didn't say let's read all of the Nicomachean Ethics. I just said let's read um, a little bit of it just to, just to have an understanding. So we're going to talk about friendship according to, uh, to Aristotle. And this is the, the pagan or the classical, the classical viewpoint. Um, and if I have classical philosophers among you, forgive my, again, my, my pigeon philosophy. Just want to get some key points out and not get into the, into the details or really bore you with the, the details of everything about friendship, according to the pagan or classical view, but kind of point out some, uh, some essential things. A lot of people have criticized Tolkien for being, for being derivative. Um, they say, oh, his work is, is derivative. Tolkien does present an image of friendship that absolutely is derivative, a derivative of something that has preceded him. He represents for a post-Christian modern audience, a perennial Christian truth. So again, he's not giving us anything that is new, except he's presenting it to us in a, in a new fashion or a, a new way. Again, it may sound denigrating to say that Tolkien doesn't offer any new ideas in his literature. One of the consequences of the Enlightenment is this emphasis or overemphasis on innovation together with the glorification of the individual. But Tolkien understands, as King Solomon declares in the book of Ecclesiastes, that what has been will be again, and what has been will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Again, for the modern and the postmodern, the term derivative is pejorative, and it's a dismissive statement of someone as, uh, as an artist. But for Tolkien, the very nature of the artist is to be derivative in nature. He has a beautiful work on literary criticism, which is called On Fairy Stories. It's about a 40-page essay, but really well worth, really well worth reading. Because in that work, 
he illustrates that God himself is the first creator and he's the only artist who can ever do anything that's actually new. Uh, And God, of course, does create new things. He says every other human creator is what Tolkien calls a quote unquote sub creator. Uh, He creates from the material that's first made new by the creator. None of us can make our dirt. We all get the dirt that's been made by God himself. And so we would be a fool to say that we create ex nihilo. The only person who creates ex nihilo from nothing is God is God himself. So Tolkien creates a secondary world that he is proudly, that is proudly derivative. He's, he's proud that it is, it is derivative. Um, it is derivative of much in the tradition of myth, literature, poetry, history, theology, philosophy, um, all these great giants that have preceded him. Tolkien builds, Tolkien builds upon it. One of the derivative presentations he makes is the nature of friendship and its role and importance to the community. And this is going to bring us to Aristotle and the, uh, I think is a three-page handout that I wanted you to read. And if you didn't, that's okay. You can read it tomorrow night (laughs) at the five o'clock hour after your busy workday. But Aristotle is a fourth century BC pagan, of course, pagan Greek. Um, his Nicomachean ethics sets the, the classical understanding of friendship. Um, it itself is the foundation for what becomes the, the, the Christian understanding. Tolkien both reflects Aristotle's classifications of friendship, and he challenges and he furthers the Aristotelian understanding precisely because of the radical nature of Jesus Christ and Christ's incarnation and how Christ himself changes the, the pagan, the pagan viewpoint. So before moving to friendship in Tolkien, uh, let's first understand what Aristotle rightly says, and then understand what the limitations of his understanding are. The handout I gave you comes from book eight of the ethics And it's in this book that Aristotle lays out the three classifications of of friendship. He says they're ones of utility, ones of pleasure, and ones of virtue. You can classify any friendship into one of those three. Uh, Friends who are of use to you, friends who are of pleasure to you, and friends whom you like because you have a shared common virtue or common good. Aristotle argues that friendship is essential to all people. Uh, We can't live alone. So in essence, he he radically differs from some of the Enlightenment philosophers who do argue that we can live alone, that we come together in in a a social contract, uh, again, purely for utility. But by nature, we're solitary. That's not according to to Aristotle. Uh, He says we can't live alone, but he says we have to understand the different forms of friendship for not all relationships, not all forms of friendship are actually alike. So he classifies friendship according to the three things that we love. We love things that are useful to us. We love things that are pleasurable to us. uh, And we love things because they are good in and of themselves. So his basis of understanding is that all men love what is good for themselves. So in other words, no one would purposefully choose what is harmful 
or bad to themselves. So he says, even the bad man chooses what he thinks is good for himself. Aristotle states, and this is from your handout, it says, quote, there are therefore three kinds of friendship equal in number to the things that are lovable. Those who love for the sake of utility, love for the sake of what is good for themselves, and those who love for the sake of pleasure, do so for the sake of what is pleasant to themselves, and not insofar as the other person is loved, but insofar as he is useful or pleasant. For it is not as being the man he is that the loved person is loved, but as providing some good or pleasure. Such friendships then are easily dissolved. Aristotle goes on, he says, but the final friendship is the quote, perfect friendship. The perfect friendship is the friendship of men who are good and alike in virtue. For these wish well alike to each other qua good and they are good themselves. So what he means is that he argues that for virtuous men, virtue is pleasurable and other good men are useful to the virtuous man for furthering the good. So in this sense, the perfect friendship combines all three of those usefulness, pleasureness, and, uh, and the good, but it's all aimed for virtue. Uh, so within a friendship of the good and the virtuous, he says, quote, there meet in it all the qualities that friends should have, and thus is a permanent friendship. Aristotle's ideas reveal their most pre-Christian basis in his idea that unequals of class cannot be friends. He, like many, many others, both before Christ and also uh, some Roman philosophers after Christ, they argue that class equality is an absolute prerequisite for shared friendship. And, And further, it's a presupposition for Aristotle and other Greek philosophers that only aristocrats, only people who are wealthy, who have property, um, could be men of full and true virtue. It's a little bit detailed. I don't want to get into it. it. Just It has to do with only rich people can help others. Only rich people can be magnanimous, give other people stuff. Uh, the poor man can't be completely virtuous because he doesn't have the fullness of virtue to give things to other people who don't have things. Just the kind of a side note, not totally essential. But the, the important quotation is one that's, I think, at the end of the handout that I gave you. Um, either you can listen or you can follow along. But what he says is, he says, in friendship, quantitative equality is primary. So again, the equality you can, you can measure, you can judge. Uh, he says, quantitative equality is primary and proportion to merit secondary. So again, a person's merit is the secondary element of friendship. It's not the primary element of friendship. He said, and Aristotle continues, this becomes clear if there is a great interval in respect of virtue or vice or wealth. This is most manifest. This is super important. Triple highlight it, put stars next to it. He said, this is most manifest in the case of the gods, for they surpass us most decisively in all good things. Nor do men of no account expect to be friends with the best or wisest men. When one party is removed to a great distance as God is, the possibility of friendship ceases. This is, in fact, the origin of the question whether friends really wish for their friends the greatest good. 
that is, of being gods, since in that case, their friends will no longer be friends to them and therefore will not be good things for them. So let's just pause for a moment and think about what Aristotle is really saying in this, because if we're Christians, this statement should really jar us because it reveals the limitations of even the best of of pagan thinkers. What he's saying is that friendship between the gods and man is impossible for the same reason that friendship between men of different classes is impossible. Um, The distance is too far removed between between the two. I don't know. Are you able to hear me? Yeah, Benjamin. Just what that first one that you read as far as the quantity versus uh, merit, I was really struck by that. Wondering if you could just revisit that briefly as far as why, if, if he ended as the with the third being virtue, mm-hmm. how that seems like when you look at friendships that you could have, and if the one of virtue, if not the culmination or including the other ones, I guess being the highest one, virtue, I would have thought first is merit. And if that's a real high, a desirable type of friendship, why he would put quantity first. Sure. Well, first remember the Greeks are not us. You know, the Greeks are not are not post-Christian thinkers. And for Aristotle's understanding, that necessity of being equal of class is essential because otherwise you simply could not be friends, for instance, with the servant. Even if you had a noble servant, in Aristotle's understanding, he could never be as noble as a noble nobleman, precisely because he lacks the the, the property or the wealth to be generous to other people. The servant always has to serve another. And so in that sense, there's a type of, of, of servile uh, power that's present within that. Whereas the aristocrat always can be beneficent to those who are beneath him. But if he need, if he's looking for an actual equal friendship, uh, it has to be with another nobleman or aristocrat who is equally as able to to be generous to others, specifically with wealth, to achieve that type of equality of of persons or equality uh, equality or friendship. So that's what he means that it has to be a type of equality that can be uh, that can be quantitative. Um, you can actually judge it. Oh, these people are equal in the sense that they are both uh, you know Athenian aristocrats. Uh, and so, while you also need merit. In some sense, the merit is secondary because Aristotle acknowledges that there are virtuous uh, uh, non-aristocrats, there are virtuous slaves, but all of them still have the vice, even if it is not of their own choosing, of their social or class position. Um, So Aristotle, again, sets people in that that inescapable class division that you can't really even, you can't even help. I mean, the gods made you an aristocrat or the gods made you, uh, made you a servant. So you can be the most virtuous servant that there is, but you will never be able to be, to cross over or to move up and to be the most virtuous aristocrat. So if you were to look at the two people, the most virtuous aristocrat will always be here and the most virtuous Slave will always be here, even though they both have achieved as much virtue as they themselves can. It's like an idea of a, 
of a glass. The aristocrat simply has a larger gra- glass or goblet, which, which he can fill and which the, the slave or the servant would not be able to fill. Does that answer your question, Benjamin, at all? Yeah, I think so. I think especially the last thing you said with relation to the um, like social position, it, to think of that notion corresponding to merit versus I am, the way I'm thinking of it is uh, the nobleness of the person, the, the good that they have as the virtue, um, rather than thinking of like in the case of quantity, as you described it, that just looking at the material goods that you'd have, you know, and Aristotle talks about how you need a certain amount just to be happy, that you're not going to be able to exercise certain virtues if you don't have, like you said, the wealth to be magnanimous. And so if you're looking to be friends with someone who has that level of virtue, they would have to correspondingly have that level of goods as well. So, so yeah, that, and also, that helps, yeah. Yeah, also just keep in mind with wealth, you are freed from the very necessity of serving an other. And so through the wealth or through the position that you are born into, you already have a, a type of power, political or social power, that the, the, the slave would never, could never achieve, could never rise to. Uh, this is an area, I think, in understanding of Greek philosophy that we as moderns really do struggle with because it's, it's, so, it's so anathema to the way we understand human nature to be. Um, and so you have to really retool your way of thinking or imagining to the way pre-Christians would have seen things, mostly because we don't even realize how radical was the change that Christ introduces into the world through Christianity, which has had reverberations even to our own time with assuming things as, as given, which if you were to say the same things to a Greek, they would have said, you're crazy. I mean, the way they even said as we see in, in the New Testament, uh, they said of Christ, you're, you're crazy. This is, not, this is not done. But it's important to understand this pagan view, precisely to understand how radical is, is the Christian one, which I'm about to get into in just a second, unless someone has another, another question about, uh, about Aristotle. I had a question, just sort of the framework that you're using in terms, uh, I, it's very interesting does this play in the way he sort of characterizes at the highest level, sort of the differences between dwarves and elves and even men, but particularly dwarves and elves? Yeah, no, no. Excellent. I love that you jump in into how does this relate to, uh, to Tolkien? Cause I'd want you to already see how this relates uh, into Tolkien. Let's table your question just for a second, Joseph, because the next section of what I want to give you with this lecture precisely has to do with, with what Tolkien then is doing in, um, in Middle Earth. So we'll table that question for just a second. Okay. If I didn't answer it, you can knock on the screen and say, hey, he didn't answer that question. Great job of framing everything up. I'm just, uh, you know, my mind's running wild. It's it's great. No, no, no. That's great. I mean, it shows me that how I'm trying to direct this is, is good because it's it'd be problematic if someone's saying, I have no idea why she's talking about Aristotle and friendship in this way. This is This is not making any sense. Uh, but it is making sense, which is good. So let's talk about Jesus Christ, uh, because the incarnation challenges this pagan understanding of friendship, uh, precisely in the era that I just said, highlight that, mark that, because we've got a big problem coming when uh, when Christ enters, enters the picture. Because Christ, God himself, he is the one who asks for friendship with his with his creatures. 
What does Christ say and say repeatedly? But he says, I call you friends. You recall, he says, I call you friends. So Jesus allows us humans, mortals, created beings to befriend the gods because the gods have extended friendship to mortals. Perhaps as Aristotle would say, a creature would never presume to initiate friendship with his creator. But Aristotle never considers what would friendship look like if the creator initiated friendship with his creatures. St. John tells his readers that, quote, we love because he first loved us. So again, friendship is possible because God first loved us. The teaching of Christ reveals that virtue is possible for all men, regardless of social status, wealth, or class. So suddenly with the introduction of this idea of supernatural grace, you have the wiping out of the barriers that pagans had previously set the movement in virtue from the lower to the to the upper class. Further upsetting this classical model, Christ suggests, in fact, that wealth and, uh, and material goods may actually be a hindrance to virtue. Christ's economy of salvation is open to all people. And so because of this, this Christian understanding of friendship is that it is possible between all human beings, men and women of goodwill. So to conclude this section on Christian friendship with a quotation from uh, my patron saint, St. Teresa of Avila, in which she directly counters this Aristotelian view of God's distance from us. St. Teresa says about mental prayer, she says, quote, mental prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. The important thing is not to think much, but to love much. And so do that which best stirs you to love. Love is not great delight, but desire to please God in everything. So we've got this this revolutionary introduction of friendship a turning of the pagan or classical understanding of friendship on its head through the incarnation and teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, And Tolkien, as a a Christian, is going to come right along and continue, again, in this derivative way, but that's not a negative, in this derivative, derivative understanding of friendship. So let's talk about friendship for Tolkien and its centrality to its work how he follows in some elements what Aristotle is saying, but how in most others, he's really following that uh, that radical revolutionary understanding of friendship that uh, the Christianity demands. Uh, so for friendship in, in Tolkien, one of his striking features is that it is, it is communal. Tolkien, like many other writers, creates one-to-one friendships. Uh, and in Tolkien's work, you know, the Frodo-Sam pairing might be the most obvious uh, of that one-to-one friendship. But Tolkien expands this circle of friendship to include many others, both as a testament to Tolkien's skill as a writer and his understanding of this expansive nature of love. Tolkien creates this amazing interactive community of friends He closely follows that Aristotelian principle that that highest form of friendship is between 
men of virtue who desire the good for the other. Yet he's going to markedly depart from the Aristotelian model by creating friendship, uh, not merely between classes, so friendships of hobbits, friendships of men, friendships of, of elves, but even more so, he departs from that model by creating friendships between gods and mortals. And obviously the, the one I'm thinking of here is, is Gandalf. Gandalf represents kind of the immortal or the, or the gods uh, against the, the mortals. One could also argue the elves as immortals are very similar to gods, but they're not really gods within Middle Earth. Um, but even still, you have friendship between elves, immortals, and, uh, and mortals. Tolkien breaks from the classical model that Aristotle, that Aristotle establishes, um, and he also breaks from the Enlightenment model of the isolated but very exalted individual to present in this new fashion this old understanding, this old understanding of, of Christian friendship. Again, it's derivative, it's not new, but it's a new way to present it to us, to a, to a contemporary or modern, of modern audience. Tolkien's character development is really extensive. Perhaps it's, it might be bold of me to state this, but I'm still going to stick to my guns and say Tolkien has more fully developed characters in the novel of The Lord of the Rings than in any other novel, potentially even any other work of literature except for the Bible. You can argue with me that I'm wrong. John argues with me that I'm wrong. My husband, John, he loves, he loves Shakespeare um, and Shakespeare is his area uh, because Shakespeare and even, for instance, Dante, they, they may be rivals to Tolkien in regards to character development, but a, a, a writer like Shakespeare, he, prevent, he presents these ver- various characters, but across a whole spectrum of different stories or of different, of different plays. Or Dante, while he's presenting you know, hundreds of different characters, they're within different cantos of his poem. So each canto is in some sense separate from the other cantos. And so the characters are not necessarily inter, interrelated. Uh, but Tolkien contains his characters in one story thread and within one within one world. So if literature is a means by which we better understand our own world and our own human relationships, the study of Middle Earth allows us to see human character because there are so many characters. It allows us to see human character and relationships and friendships in a very complete, in a very diverse in a very realistic, uh, realistic way. So true friendship in Middle Earth following Aristotle is absolutely directed towards the good of the other. Um, And it's very important to note that the highest good in Lord of the Rings is not the destruction of the ring and the defeat of the evil Sauron. And I'll come back to this repeatedly because it's so important in Tolkien's work that the reader not be tricked in some sense into thinking that the end is the ultimate goal, the destruction of, of the ring. Um, because if Tolkien emphasized the success of the mission, he would have made the person just into an object and the friendships of the story only into ones of utility. I hope you see that using other people's to achieve this end, a good end, um, and yet you're still using everyone 
to achieve the end. My father, God rest his soul, he used to talk when I was young about what he called orphans for the cause, and it's always stuck with me. Um, and these were children whose parents neglected or emotionally abandoned them because of the parents' overactive involvement in good and in worthy causes. Um, he was particularly thinking of, of the pro-life cause, and which he saw a lot of really good families whose children were just wholly neglected because the parents were so consumed in the cause. Um, so again, the causes may be good, they may be worthy, but they're not at the expense of those for whom you have a primary responsibility to love and to nurture. So Tolkien doesn't fall into this temptation to exalt the end over the person or to use the person to achieve the end. Um, side note, but parallel to this, this is why Tolkien hates allegory because he feels that is the author forcing the reader to a single conclusion that the author has made. And that violates the, the reader and his or her own freedom. Uh, and it also violates in some sense the, the very mode of, of reading or the mode of imagination um, in which you say this absolutely corresponds to this in regards, in regards symbols. Um, so again, Tolkien will never, will never do that. He'll never say the end is more important than the person or the person has to be used to achieve the end. Just to jump ahead and reading, but hopefully from people's knowledge of Tolkien, you'll know the scene that I'm going to reference here. But we see this very clearly in that sinister conversation that Gandalf and Saruman have when Saruman is trying to persuade his quote-unquote old friend to follow his way of thinking. Um, but Saruman, again, this is an Arist Aristotelian friendship. These are equals in race, equals in class, but they are not equals in, in virtue. They're equal in all things but virtue. But Saruman uses the language of, of friendship uh, to urge Gandalf to use the ring to destroy Sauron. Um, so one of the things that strikes me with that conversation, we'll delve into it when we actually get to this, get to this section. But he says, he says, the power is growing, the power of Sauron. He says, we may join with that power. As the power grows, its proved friends will also grow. And the wise, such as you and I, may with patience come at last to direct its course, to control it. We can bide our time. We can keep our thoughts in our hearts. And here's the key about using the, the, the means to justify the ends. He says, uh, keep our thoughts in our hearts, deploring maybe evils done by the way, but approving the high and ultimate purpose, knowledge, rule, order, all the things that we have so far striven in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by our weak or idle friends. There need not be, there would not be any real change in our designs, only in our means. Um, so again, this understanding of, of utilitarianism uh, will come up repeatedly in Tolkien, uh, and he will always return to the ultimate truth of, of friendship. You can never use a friend, even if it is for, uh, even if it's for a, a good end. Okay, I, I don't have time to illustrate all the friendships within the work. So as you read, consider this interlacing of, of people, of characters, of friends that, uh, that occurs. But let me just focus on one, this first friendship that we see in the book, which is the friendship between Bilbo 
and uh, and Gandalf, because this is the first very significant challenge to this Aristotelian suggestion that mortals cannot be friends with the gods. Bilbo is a landowner. He's a wealthy hobbit. Um, so in that sense, because he's an aristocrat, but he remains part of the peasant race of Middle Earth, which is the hobbits. They're of little account to the powers of the world. Gandalf is a what's called a Maya, M-A-I-A, which in the uh, hierarchy of Tolkien's Middle Earth, the Maya are angelic beings immediately below what are called the Valar, who are like the angels. And the Valar are immediately below the one God who is called Iluvatar. So Gandalf essentially is three steps down from, from being the one God. So it's Iluvatar, the Valar, and then it's the Maiar. And Gandalf is, is a Maiar. And so these are the angelic beings that are assigned to be caretakers of Middle Earth, of the of the created world, and each Meyer has a specific province. Just like we believe that there are angels that have province over different things, over a city, over a house, over a country. Tolkien is following the same understanding of of his Meyer. Um, so Gandalf is a uh, an angelic being who has been assigned again, assigned by someone else. We were seeing in Tolkien repeatedly this uh, non-specific actor who's who's present and of course he's assigned by the one creator who is Iluvatar but despite these vast differences in class in status in power and even in their very being Gandalf and Bilbo are friends they care for the other's good and their and their well-being but also enjoying the other person's company and they they work with each other for a common end, for a common good. They have a shared virtuous end that they that they have. If we look at their initial conversation, you can see that they have this, this care and, and trust in, in one another. I'm using um, this Houghton Mifflin version and most people's pagination is the same, but some people don't have the same pagination. But this is over on page 41 when you have this initial conversation, this is um, towards the end of a long expected party, maybe the middle of that chapter, a long expected party. But uh, this is when Bilbo says, shares to Gandalf, he says, I am old Gandalf. I may not look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. Well-preserved indeed. Why I feel all thin, sort of stretched if you know what I mean, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. That can't be right. I need a change or something. Um, so you see already this type of trust from Bilbo to, to Gandalf. And Gandalf, of course, urges him to leave the ring to Frodo. And then that's when the, the friendship begins to have a, a marring, a marringness to it. If we look a little bit further in this. He says, uh, an angry light was in Bilbo's eyes. And his kindly face grew hard. Well, if you want my ring yourself, say so, cried Bilbo. But you won't get it. I won't give my precious away, I tell you. His hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. So again, Bilbo reacts like this, of course, because of the ring's influence. But also that type of reaction is that sense of violation of friendship that arises when you think, this person wants me for something. He wants to use something that I have. I'm no longer a friend to this person. I'm an object. 
So again, that's what the that's what the ring insinuates into Bilbo's mind that Gandalf is using Bilbo, violating their friendship. How does Gandalf respond? But he reminds him of their friendship. He says, "All your long life, we have been friends. I am not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me as you used. Stop possessing the ring." Bilbo desires virtuously to stop possessing the ring. But this desire, this virtuous desire, is itself strengthened by his friend's desire for Bilbo's own freedom and spiritual well-being, precisely because Gandalf doesn't desire the ring. He desires Bilbo's freedom, that in some sense, the truth and, and sincerity of that friendship allows for the strengthening of the virtue within, within Bilbo himself. And Gandalf later tells Frodo that Bilbo is only able to give up the ring because of Gandalf's help. Um, so this is the initial paired friendship that we see, but it quickly expands outward to include many others. Some that follow the Aristotelian model, you can say that's between Bilbo and, and Frodo, that follows the Aristotelian model of friendship. But much more you have, you have as, the, as the community expands, friendships that, that in no way follow, follow this model. So you have Bilbo and Gandalf, and you have Bilbo, Gandalf, and Frodo, then you have an addition of Sam that comes into this. Uh, so suddenly you have the other hobbits, Mary, Pippin, even little Fatty Bolger, whose name always cracks me up, and Samwise, who's there. Uh, so all this friendship suddenly becomes this huge multitude of people, this, this real expansion, expansion of love. There, I think, again, you have that Christian understanding of of love as infinite as opposed to love as finite. It's what Dante picks up on at the end of the Paradiso when you see the, the joy at another coming to paradise. And I forget what character says it, but I remember the line. He says, lo, here comes another to increase our love. So it's that very understanding that love increases, whereas uh, hate just shrinks in and in and in on itself. So Tolkien's friendships, his love just expands exponentially. So this initial fellowship of four hobbits, it expands to include a, a king, which is, of course, Aragorn. Uh, it expands to include Glorfindel, who's a, an elven lord. Um, it then expands to include Elrond, an elven king. Uh, and the circle is, continues to expand. Uh, it adds another elven lord, Legolas. And then to, to get to, was it Joe's point, Joseph's point? Suddenly you have a dwarf, uh, a natural enemy of the elves, who's part of this community too. So Gimli, who's a dwarf prince. Uh, you have a human warrior, Boromir. So the apparent number of the actual fellowship is nine, but in actuality, it includes all these others and includes, includes many more as part, of this, as part of this community. The fellowship may be nine, but again, the quest is only achieved through the interacting work of, of, countless, of countless others. Um, so again, while you have friendships between equal aristocrats, much more are there friendships between unequals, except in that very key element of the purpose for the good, the increase of, of virtue. So Tolkien diverges from the pagan classical view but he very much follows the new model that Jesus Christ gives to the world. And so in that sense, the eclectic nature of Tolkien's own fellowship uh, very much parallels and reflects 
uh, that eclectic nature of Christ's own chosen apostles and his own initial disciples and even the early Christian communities. Okay, so let me stop there as I've been going on and on, but let me see what thoughts, questions, responses, objections you all might have to what we have, what we've discussed. I was just curious, um, and this comes from somewhat personal experience as a, as a Marine, the, that, that same Aristotelian friendship that you described, do you think, or how do you think, was it influenced by his, his experiences in World War in, in World War One? Because that really describes like small unit infantry, where you take a bunch of knuckleheads from different parts of, you know, different backgrounds, you put them together, throw them through a crucible and it's, it's something you can't break. I was just yeah. curious if that was. No, absolutely. Thank you for that wonderful question. Yeah, that's something you see in the language of Samwise Ganji to, to Master Frodo. Tolkien discusses in his letters how he absolutely modeled Samwise Ganji on what he called the Batman, Batmen of World War I, which were the servants of the lieutenants. Again, uh, England still had a very strong class structure that Americans don't fully comprehend or understand. But every officer was given a type of manservant to tend to his, you know, make his coffee, make sure his boots had the mud off of them, help them get the boots off. But uh, more intimately and, and more, and I think more grievously, those were the men who helped keep many of those lieutenants alive through horrible and disgusting battlefield circumstances. Batmen who risked their own lives to pull their lieutenants you know, off of the wires, uh, to get them back into the trenches, who themselves would you know, put their own cloaks over, over their dying, their dying uh, officer. And what Tolkien speaks about is that he saw so much natural virtue in these men who had zero education that he, was, he would be forever moved by by that type of loyalty, undying, un, un, unfailing loyalty that the Batman showed um, on the on the battlefield. So, Scott, I think you're absolutely right that his own experience in war helps to helps to affect his understanding. I won't say affect, but to cement the Christian understanding of how human relationships ought to be. Of course, you know we fail in that uh, in that idea all the time, but. But it was that experience on the battlefield that led Tolkien to see how important and essential and even nobler were the the Batman than even the, the lieutenants and officers that that they served. Oh, great. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Nicole. I was just sort of thinking like at the very sort of when Bilbo first comes in, and there's this talk about how for the hobbits in the Shire, with the exception of Bilbo, I guess, Gandalf is just sort of this sort of Father Christmassy character who shows up with fireworks every once in a while. And I was just thinking how friendship, it doesn't eliminate the differences, even though it's interesting that someone like Bilbo could be friends with Gandalf, but it doesn't make them the same. It It's this sense kind of an equalizer, but it's not, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you the same. They keep their distinctiveness. And from the outside, sort of looking in the hobbits, it's like, he is still so other from them. He is 
they don't even know, they don't even, they can't even conceive of who he actually is. He's just the bringer of fireworks. And I don't know. Yeah. Well, that, that I think points to the, to the true beauty of diversity that one achieves a true diversity through recognizing the unique aspects of, of people's own personality. And yet you have unity through the things that, uh, that you, that you love and you share and that you share together. Uh, and so, no, B- Gandalf is not asking that Bilbo become more like a wizard. He wouldn't want Bilbo to come become more like a wizard because part of his love for Bilbo is the whole hobbitishness of, of, of Bilbo. Um, Gandalf loves the hobbits and not just because they're sort of playthings of his. That's not why he's so enamored of the hobbits is from this sort of, oh, I'm a god and look at these funny little people that with furry feet that walk around. No, he loves the hobbits because there is a type of, of innocence that's present within the Shire that others in the book recognize. This is a type of innocence non-worldliness that needs to be preserved and protected. That's what Aragorn says, that beautiful, beautiful line. He says, I forget exactly where, where he says, I protect these people and get no credit for it because were I to get credit for it, it would in some sense violate the very thing that I'm protecting. And so he said, I'm happy to do it without any, uh, with any knowledge and even to, to take the insults that they give to me all to preserve this thing that is that is worth, that's worth preserving. Yeah. So no, I think that very much Nicole, part of this understanding of friendship. And again, it's, it's not new. Uh, this is part of Christian, the Christian view of friendship is the person is loved for the fullness of their, of their person, of their personality, uh, not for what they, not what, what you could make them into. You know, God loves us for, for us and also for the, the fullness of what he intends for us, for us to be. Um, but again, that's the fullness of, you could say, a hobbit or the fullness of a wizard or the fullness of a human or the fullness of an elf. You, you fill in the blank. Uh, and so there's just a be- very beautiful um, element that's there of, of difference that, that Tolkien is very much, very much celebrating. Okay, uh, let me stop here because our time has come to, a, come to a close. But I just want to thank you all for a first session. I really look forward to our remaining seven, where we, we get to get into this novel closely and talk about the, the images, the themes, what's going on. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.